This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today, you can hear Open Country. We pass through the ha-ha into Winston Churchill's family garden. At the moment, you can sort of look out towards his swimming pool and out into the lakes that he put in himself. There's an existing lake here, a small one, uh, and he adapted it and improved upon it and made two lakes. So what you're talking about is, well, everybody instantly recognises Winston Churchill, one of the greatest British leaders of the 20th century, our war leader, instantly recognisable character in his very physique. Yes. But possibly what they don't know so much about is this man had an oasis in his life. Definitely. A place that he could retreat to with his family, and that is Chartwell. And Tim Parker, you're the head gardener here at Chartwell. (laughs) superb. Oh, I bet it (laughs) is, absolutely. So what we'd love to do for this week's Open Country is to explore that side of Winston Churchill in this, the year, the 50th anniversary of his death, to look at how this man had a passion for landscape. And in this estate that he bought, he could let that passion just... He loved the outdoors from an early age. He was known for collecting butterflies and and pinning them to boards. He loved water and he chose Chartwell partly because it had water here, had potential. He was into managing water. In fact, Chartwell... Chart is a a common Kentish name for for common land and well-being that there's lots of springs. So there is a well here which feeds the main uh, Gold North Pond. What he did do, it was an amazing feat of, of engineering here. It's all interlinked, so we've got three large fish ponds. As we walk round through the gardens here, you'll see them. The Gold North Pond as well, so where he kept his prized collection of all fish. That then falls into uh, Gavin Jones' cascade, which we can, can hear and as we approach it. And it seems to sort of appear out from underneath the trees, fall over the black rock and then disappear... And then yeah, it's through a, a channel. It, yes. the, we actually mm. walk over a small mm. bridge and it falls down into the cascade into the swimming pool. That then um, falls down into the, the top lake. That then goes into the lower lake and then it's heaved back up the estate, past the house, back into the, the header pond, the top pond, and then it cycles and makes its journey all the way down. Um, just when we were coming past, in fact, is it there? Yes, here we go. It says black swans. Please be aware the black swans can be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Our gardeners have had a few um, skirmishes with them. Why did he have black swans in the first place? I think they were given to him, and then from then on they sort of decided to keep them for, forevermore. We have this combination between a man-made landscape and with a sweep of undulating land that rises up behind us. We're on the North Weald... Yes. ..and this landscape is very typical of that, the rise and the fall. Definitely. Crispin Scott from the National Trust is with us as well and you're involved in wildlife and countryside with the Trust and you come into this estate and we're going to be discovering how Winston Churchill in a way managed and manipulated this landscape to make it as best as possible for wildlife. Yes indeed, I think Tim would agree that in uh, terms of country mansions the house and the garden is not exceptional but it's this setting in the Weald of Kent that is so good where the green sand hits the clay you get these fault lines where all the water uh, arises 
I think Churchill saw that and saw the unique setting and has really developed that. And I like to think he sort of, you know, he led the fight in World War II for freedom and democracy and all that, but he was also defending the green and pleasant land, and this is a real part of that. So there's the formal garden area, which I think Tim originally came here to, to manage, and then you've got the much wider parkland and woodland, and I think that really appealed to Churchill. Uh, he had things like belted Galloway cattle, which are now a rare breed, grazing the parkland. During the uh, Second World War, part of the park was ploughed up uh, for crop production, but um, I think the local war agricultural committee had to tell Churchill it wasn't very good and didn't produce much corn, and, and uh, they put it back to uh, pasture, and it was better to produce meat than uh, to produce grain. I'm going to go inside the magnificent house for a while. I'm going to meet Catherine Barnett. She's the house and collections manager. So oh, I'm in through the front door, although I have to take my boots off. They're absolutely clagged with mud. Catherine, hello. Hello, nice yeah. to meet you. <laughs> You're unlocking the wooden door for us. I am indeed, yes. Sort of illustrate to you. It's a lovely one of the view of the east-facing side of the house. Which is taken, yes, from up on the hillside somewhere and has a snow scene. It is indeed, yes. So it was uh, done the winter of 1924-25 and it's from approximately the lake looking back towards the house. Many people would know, Catherine, that Churchill did love to paint. But one of his favourite subjects was looking out across the views at Chartwell and recording those on canvas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he moved into the house at Chartwell in 1924, and the fact that one of the very first things he'll have painted when he was here was this lovely painting, Winter Sunshine, says quite a lot about just how impressed he was with how it sat amidst the landscape. It really does bring a bit of a chill to you. It's very effective in how it's depicting that scene. And also the red brick of Chartwell itself, dark on the gable ends, but brightened when the winter sun's shining on it at the other ends. Well, yeah. definitely, yes. You can tell it's, a, it's one of those really sunny, yet very chilly days here at Chartwell, and I think he's captured that wonderfully. I mean, the windows are boarded up at the moment in the chill of winter, but he would have looked out of every window and seen across, you know, the North Weald, and it would have just been really inspiring, of course. It certainly would have been... I mean, when Churchill first saw Chartwell, it was more the views and the landscape that he fell in love with more than the house, and he actually did extensive renovation to the house to add more windows to bring more light in. So he would certainly have spent a great deal of time looking out across. And the desk in the study where he spent a huge amount of his time, that is in one of the prime locations to look out across the Weald of Kent, so he certainly would have drawn inspiration from it. I'm staying in the house because I want to have a chat to Chris Sutcliffe, and you're working on a a very special project which will give us an insight, possibly, again, into the life of Churchill that not many people know about, and that he was a wildlife gardener extraordinaire. Am I right, Chris? That's right. One of the reasons he bought Chartwell was his stunning location, but it also gave him the opportunity to work with water because mm-hmm. he was passionate about wildlife as attracted by water. You're researching into the Churchill archive to find those little nuggets of information which can build up that picture of Churchill as that wildlife gardener. That's right. So you've been delving into what, and what have you found? What I'm actually doing is I'm trying to look at correspondence in the Churchill archives between Clementine and Winston. Wherever they went, and they travelled a lot, they were always in touch, and they sent letters to each other almost every day. 
And it's just fascinating. And not only that, only this morning I've discovered he was on the Queen Elizabeth in 1946, sailing to the United States. And he wrote a communication to the head gardener at the time Mm -hmm. saying um, he wanted flocks planted and so forth. He was giving instructions how he wanted things done while he was on the ocean waves. (laughs) That's how hands-on he was. And I think the garden and nature were as important to him as the paintings we've spoken about, to his political life, to the farms he had, and to his writings, all the books and magazine articles Mm. he wrote and everything else. So everything was so important to him, and how he fitted everything into a 24-hour day, I don't know. Yeah, Yeah. this is an instruction he's given to Mr Vincent, who's head gardener, for the ordering of cut flower plants for the cut flower garden, which is part of the kitchen garden. But he mentions the very species, the varieties even, he gives them names. Absolutely, he does. He's obviously advised to some extent by the head gardener. They They work, I think, very closely in partnership, but he does his research. He wants to grow flax in this one, look. He says, please order several packets... All these orders then being, you know, passed back to the head gardener. Tim, I don't know how that makes you feel as the current head gardener, how you would I have coped with that. I would be um, quite scared because if there was a particular variety of plant you wanted and you couldn't find it, you'd be working day and night to find it. I mean, for such an iconic person, I think also you'd be quite proud, actually. He always wanted to know what a bird coming to the garden he didn't recognise. He'd find out about it. He made his famous statement that a tree should never, ever be cut down without growing another. Yes. He would That's never, really never, ever kill an insect. So he was a great conservationist and, and environmentalist and an understanding before conservation became, you know, the major theme that it is everywhere now. I think he was ahead of his time. I think he really, really was. Now... Even though this is a dormant time for butterflies, I think we should explore them as a creature because they were very much part of Churchill's passion for nature. And I'm with Matthew Oates, who's the butterfly specialist, and we'll come round the side of the house into a sheltered area, these very well-clipped yew hedges. We're walking towards, well, it might have been a little sort of garden hut at some point. It was a game larder. What was it? It was originally designed as a brick-built game larder. So it's north-facing, so it's relatively cool. And then what Churchill did was develop it into a butterfly breeding house because he collected butterflies as a small boy at prep school on the Sussex Downs. And then his interest as a young man continued. In, he, he collected in South Africa, India and the West Indies. And then affairs of state took his life over. And so very sadly, he had to give up butterflies. But he came back to them here at Chartwell after the war and bred the caterpillars in this old um, game larder which he had converted into a butterfly breeding house and he let them go into the garden. As we look at it now, so we've got the brick frame but the front of it's been taken off and then there's a wooden frame has been created yeah. with that mesh, can I just oh yes, it's a soft fishing mesh and then yeah. inside on these benches which are the original benches, so the great man would have sat on these very benches uh-huh and watch his caterpillars eat and um, inside uh, breeding cages 
which we've got here now. Mm-hmm. So what was he breeding here as we look in...? Quite a variety, including some of the rare species. In fact, L. Hugh Newman tried to get Churchill to reintroduce one extinct species to this country, something called the black vein white, which had died out nationally. It last occurred in Kent, really, during the 1920s. And in fact, it didn't work. And Newman also persuaded him to try and introduce the continental subspecies of the swallowtail and that didn't work uh, either and one of the things Churchill wanted was to have a garden full of butterflies uh, for his garden parties but he found out they may come out from this uh, butterfly house and flop around on a a budlier or hebe for a a little while but then they'll disperse so I think he uh, really ended up just doing the the ordinary garden butterflies so what happened here is he was a pioneer of what we now call butterfly gardening really? and indeed wildlife gardening. You would give him that title? Yes, and if we wander down the steps mm-hmm. and around the corner along the border, we'll see uh, the remains of um, some of the original plantings. If we turn right here and I'll skirt along this yew hedge. Because you can't really breed butterflies unless you give them the full elements of the cycle that, that they require. Well, there's what we call the larval food plants, what the caterpillars mm. eat. But also what we have here are the, the hebes and budliers, which the ad- adult butterflies take nectar from. And these are the remains of uh, mm. Newman's advisory planting scheme. Mm. And what are the butterflies like across the estate generally? Is there a good population? We're in a very rich butterfly landscape here on the edge of the weald. It would have been much better in Churchill's days. We probably lost a few of our woodland butterflies, some of the fritillaries, for example. But no, it is surprisingly rich. I rediscovered um, the purple emperor butterfly here two years ago, which I was quite pleased about. And Churchill would be delighted. We'd crack open a bottle of something special for that. He would be utterly delighted to have the greatest of all British butterflies, the purple emperor, here in the Chartwell Woods. Is this the orf pond? Yes. Mm-hmm. There are several of them, but this is the oh, main oh, one. Yes, this is there. The there. Yes. So the orf are still in the pond. Yes. There, these streaks of gold and yellow appear from underneath the, the vegetation. I'm with Celia Sands. You are Winston Churchill's granddaughter. And you've come to the ponds for a particular reason because we can still see in them now the orf fish, which he had a huge passion. They're like, well, they're giant-sized goldfish, really. This was a regular pilgrimage of ours. We used to always come. And I remember coming with my grandfather and we'd cross over and he'd get the food out of the box and he'd sit in his chair and he'd throw the food in and he'd say, you see, they know me. Well, when I was very little, I believed that the fish did really did. know him. Afterwards, I realised they knew what food was. But we loved coming here. And the family came here regularly. You And did you, when you were here, were you allowed to roam across the estate and take it all in? Well, we could do absolutely everything we liked here. Yes, it was wonderful. And we did some of the things that we shouldn't have done. My sister and I once found some big taps somewhere very close to this pond and we couldn't think what they were for, so we just turned them. And it didn't seem to do anything, so we kept turning. Then we went away, and about an hour later we came back and we found the water level had gone right down and the fish were all thrashing around. (laughs) Fortunately, 
my uncle came along and he was rather cross with us, but we didn't mind that because we, we were saved from much worse if we <laughs> killed off the fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you wouldn't have thought of him as the politician, the war leader. He was just your grandfather, really. I think after the war, the only people in the world who took Winston Churchill completely for granted were his grandchildren. And for us, he was just grandpapa. I mean, even his children were in awe of him to a degree because they'd lived through the 30s and they'd lived through the war years and they'd been living through all the amazing things that he'd been doing. You know, for us, we really, he was just grandpapa. Mm. He relished the time spending with his grandchildren here. He absolutely loved having as many of his children and grandchildren around as possible. I think he'd had a somewhat bleak childhood. And so, therefore, he really enjoyed sitting around the table here at Chartwell and seeing as many members of the family there as possible. And he loved going out with us and going for walks with with us. And we really enjoyed being with him. And we weren't asking him political questions or trying to take his photograph. We had very few photographs. We just liked being with him. Yeah. So could you see that this was a private place of retreat for him? He used to say a day away from Chartwell is a day wasted. Yeah. This was definitely the safe harbour that he returned to. He couldn't stay here all the time. He loved going away. He needed to travel. But this was where he always returned and this was the place he loved the best. How important a part of the Churchill legacy do you think this more private element is? And in particular, his passion for nature and what he did for wildlife on the estate. I think there are two things. I think Chartwell was a very important place and a very important place, apart from the nature, from the fact that this was where everything happened in the 30s. This is where people came to tell him all that was going on across the other side of the English Channel and what the, what Hitler was doing in Germany. And they came from the Foreign Office and told him what was going on when they shouldn't have told him. So the fact that he was here made him much more better informed than the Prime Minister or the ministers in the government. The fact that he could be here in this lovely place where he could be also take moments of peace and relaxation in the beautiful countryside. After all, he didn't buy a house, he bought a view. He bought the magnificent view over the Weald of Kent. So he, he certainly could get his peace here. He could get his peace here. Yeah, that's very personal. And even though it's large-scale, you feel there are places where it's very intimate and private and very reflective. And you could almost see him sitting in the chair on the other side of the pond. Oh, I can see him sitting in the chair on the other side of the pond, absolutely, (laughs) yes. I can certainly picture him there. And that was one of the favourite places. And we'd always have Rufus the Poodle. I think Rufus the Poodle is buried here. Rufus 1 and Rufus 2, probably. And I would go and see him having his breakfast in the morning where there'd be Rufus the Poodle running around. His cat would be curled up beside him and Toby the Budgerigar would be sharing the breakfast. (laughs) And those were the legendary long breakfasts that he had, but also reading his papers and and everything. And you would just go into the bedroom and rake around and see all this menagerie. We'd just go in to say good morning. I mean, people seem to think that he was a sort of scary person, but he wasn't at all. We're just coming up to this former swimming pool and it's, it's set actually up on an embankment and it's surrounded by trees and um, 
what I have to do is just scramble about a bit because Mike Phillips, who's from the Kent Reptile and Amphibian Group, does a lot of surveying work here. So if I just edge my way past these brambles... Mike, hello. Hello there. Hi. I know it's a very dormant time for creatures like reptiles and lizards and so forth, but there's still work to do. There's always work to do. Um, although we're outside the survey season, so the chances of us seeing animals at a time, this time of year is very remote. But what we've got in front of us here are, effectively, it's a piece of corrugated metal mm-hmm. and a piece of roofing felt. Why are they there? The reason they're here is that reptiles are cold-blooded or ectothermic, and what that means is that they need to heat themselves up before they can go out and about and do their the business of the day, whether it be hunting or breeding or whatever it is. And as a consequence, they go underneath these tins and felts because they warm up in the sun. And what would be here? All of the widespread reptile species... Uh, are found at Chartwell, but because it's a damp area, there's, there's a pool here and there are lakes all around, it's particularly well suited to grass snakes. Grass snakes eat amphibians and fish, and hence they will really flourish in the undergrowth here, and then they'll feed in the, in the ponds there as well. Do they go into the water? They, or do, they do swim. They're very good swimmers, uh, grass snakes. And when Churchill was redesigning Chartwell, when he was... Uh, doing work on the landscape. Did did he have these creatures in mind, the toads and the frogs and the lizards and the newts? And Well, we don't know whether he had them in mind or not, but whether it was purposeful or inadvertent, what's actually happened here is some fantastic habitat has been created. What we have in front of us is what I'd call a, a medium-sized pond. It's not a big lake and it's not a tiny pond, but that makes it the ideal size for, for great crested newts, which are one of our protected species. But it started out as a private swimming pool, but now we see it fringed with rushes and shrubs and reeds and, you know, right down and into the water. So a great way, you know, for creatures to get in and out now. Maybe not when Winston was splashing about in it. It's absolutely perfect now. The vegetation means that animals have got somewhere to lay their eggs. They've got places to hide if there are predators around as well. And importantly, this pond is either free of fish or doesn't have many fish. And fish act as as predators to all of our amphibians, except for the common toad. So no golden orf in this pond. Orf free. We hope not. Mm -hmm. Oh, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure if we should go across here because the swans... No. We can go this way. They've come straight at us. Look at that. They raise their necks high and then they shout at us, keep away. So I think that's our warning. <laughs> well, you could go first, Tim. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll go first, I don't mind. I'm, right. Ready? The black time. swan run. Oh, there's something alongside us. Oh, look at the arch. Look at the way they're arching their necks and staring at us. Keep going, keep going, Tim. This is the stone embankment along the side of the pond, but we have to move quickly because they're... And they're coming with us. Quick! And to safety. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! We made it. (laughs) Timmy died in 1965... Yes. Um, and he wanted to be buried at Chartwell. 
for a long, long, long time he wanted to bury here and it's e- easy to see why. Um, but eventually I think the, he changed his mind and he was buried near to Blenheim at um, Bladen. I don't mean to be disrespectful to Winston Churchill for he was a great political leader, a leader during you know the nation's most troubled times. He was a magnificent character. But you only need to be at Chartwell for a short space of time you almost forget about that and you think about the man who really cared about landscape, countryside. He cared to build an environment in which wildlife would thrive. And maybe in this year when the 50th anniversary of his death is celebrated, it will all be about the great Churchill and the politics. But I think you'll be missing an important part of the man if you didn't also know what happened here at Chartwell.